Again, uh, welcome. Our plan this evening is to continue uh, with the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, continuing by looking at chapter 1. Did anyone not get a copy of chapter 1 on your way in? Because we can get one to you. We're going to walk through it together. So if you'll unfold it, and then we will walk through it chapter by chapter together this evening. Before we look at it, I want to read Psalm 19 together. Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The confession that has been framed by men of old in the late 17th century, began rightly and rightly so looking at the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 1 of the Confession of the Holy Scriptures. I want to walk through all ten paragraphs. We'll spend more time on some than others. But let's begin by looking at paragraph 1 together. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule that is, absolute guide or standard, of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so plainly reveal the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave all mankind without excuse, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary for salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at various times and in different ways, to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church. Then, for the better preservation and spread of the truth, and more surely to establish and comfort the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, God committed the same complete, final, and sufficient revelation entirely to writing. This means that the Holy Scriptures are most necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people 
have now ended. What we have here in the entirety of the confession, but especially here in this first chapter, and then more specifically in the first paragraph of the first chapter, is a splendid summary of the most important matters of the Bible. There's a survey throughout the confession of subjects that everyone should understand in order to build their life securely on the Word of God. Every subject that we can think of is not covered exhaustively. Every subject that you can think of is not even referenced generally. But the essential elements to life and life eternal are explained adequately. Look with me again at the first sentence. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. It's the only one. There are four modifiers of rule. So the Scripture is a rule. It's a guide for us. It's a standard for us. But the framers of the confession have given us four different modifiers. First, only. It's the only sufficient rule. It's the only certain rule. It's the only infallible rule. Only in this way. It is uniquely in a category with nothing else. Nothing else compares to the Scriptures. It is the only sufficient rule. The Scriptures include every necessary teaching for saving knowledge, for saving faith, And for obedience. The scriptures are the only sufficient rule for us. They are the scriptures are the only certain rule. There's a settled exactness to the scriptures. They aren't changing. Nothing's being added to them. Nothing is being taken away. They are certain, inerrant. And the next phrase, only infallible rule. Not only does scripture not err. It cannot err. It's incapable of being in error. So the revelation of God from God to his people contained in the Bible is our rule of life. We arrange our lives individually as families, as churches, as communities, as nations, everything. We arrange them according to the revelation of Scripture. God has revealed himself in two primary ways. We see, we see that in the passage that I read from Psalm 19. General revelation, which is referenced here in paragraph 1, that is the revelation of creation. You look around, and though you may, the, you may feel like the burden is on you to prove that creation has been created by God. However, creation exists. It is there. It is evident. The burden is on the one who denies a creator. Where did it come from? How did it come about if there is no creator? So all men are without excuse. All women, all boys and girls are without excuse because of general revelation, because of creation. Because of the world around us, we are without excuse. We should know God. We are expected to know him and to worship him. However, the creation around us, the creation revelation or general revelation, 
though it is sufficient to damn someone, it is insufficient to save anyone. So God has gone a step further and not just created the world for us to see and therefore know him, but he's given us special revelation, the scriptures. And he has spelled out exactly for us all that we need to know who he is, what our condition was before him, what it is now, and how we can be made right with him. He has given us this in special revelation. So general revelation, creation revelation is enough to damn, and special revelation is enough to both damn and save. So you can't look at the trees and be saved. You can hear the gospel and be saved. Only the gospel has the power to save. God has determined to use the gospel alone. Right, let's look at paragraph 2 of chapter 1. Under the name of the Holy Scripture, or the written word of God, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament. These are as follows. The Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I learned them 43 years ago, so it's hard to slow down. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon, the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Epistle of James, the first and second Epistles of Peter, the first, second, and third Epistles of John, the Epistle of Jude, the revelation. All of these are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule that is the absolute guide or standard of faith and life. I don't have a lot to say on this chapter. The books that are noted here, they are in the Bible. That's it. Nothing else. Now, you can put other books in the Bible, but it doesn't make them scripture. You can slide them in. I mean, we can take chapter 1 and and put it right there and say, yeah, it's in the Bible. It is not God's word. Only these 66 books are God's holy word. So, actually, in my notes, I have three words under that section. The scriptures defined. This is them. No more. And if you look with me at paragraph 3... We'll see why this is an important issue. The books commonly called Apocrypha were not given by divine inspiration and are therefore not part of the canon or rule of the Scripture. Therefore, they have no authority in the church of God, nor are they to be approved or made use of in any way that is different from other human writings. I've de- described this section. I have three words to say. These All other books, that's four words, sorry, all is not in my notes. Other books differentiated. Anything else, it doesn't matter how many religions or how old a religion is that gives attention to any other books other than the 66 that are contained in the scriptures. They are not divinely inspired. 
They are not Scripture. They have no authority in the church. It doesn't mean that they're not useful. Even here it says they're not to be, nor are they to be approved or made use of in any way that is different from any other human writings. Other human writings are good. Even the Apostle Paul at one point says, bring me my books. Other books are good. It would be absurd for me to say that books are of no value. If you go on the other side of that wall right there, it, it, it would make me a hypocrite. Books are of value. They are not on par with the Scriptures. They do not compare with the Holy Scriptures. Paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which reason it ought to be believed, does not depend upon the testimony of any man or church, but entirely upon God, who is truth itself, who is its author. It is therefore to be received because it is the word of God. So the scriptures, these 66 books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are authoritative in nature. Why are they authoritative? Because of their author. Because it's God's word. It's God's holy word to his people. So the authority, again, doesn't come from the special paper that it's written on. It's not written with holy ink. It's not... The authority doesn't come because of the precise translation or even because of the original inscription of it. Its authority is derived solely and only from its author, from God himself. The scriptures are authoritative because they are the word of God. Chapter 5. We may be motivated and persuaded by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Furthermore, the heavenliness of the content, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the agreement of all of the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, The full disclosure it makes of the only way of man's salvation, together with its many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections, are arguments by which the Bible abundantly demonstrates itself to be the Word of God. However, notwithstanding all this, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, I find paragraph 5 to be rather interesting because there are eight positives listed. There there are eight reasons that the Bible can be trusted, and they're all good. I'm going to review them again here in just a moment. But then in the end, it's this, however, notwithstanding all of this, even though there are eight reasons clearly stated that the Bible can be trusted, none of them compare to the overarching reason that it ought to be trusted because of the witness of the Spirit with the Word in our hearts. Look at the reasons why the Bible can be trusted. The testimony of the church. Just the fact that we're using this confession as a church, decades, scores of years later, 
is evident that the testimony of the church has proven faithful and valuable with regard to how we approach the Bible. Since the canonization of Scripture in just a few years, a few decades after Jesus lived, when the Scriptures are gathered together and it's determined which books would be canonized and would be included in the Holy Scriptures. Since then, the testimony of the church has proven faithful. Have people veered off here and there? Absolutely. But as we look back at church history, seeing people veer off is helpful for us to see the veracity of the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures. Because when we begin to get away from the truth of the Scripture, even in one little area, I mean, if we veer from the truth of the Scriptures... In, in one little area, by next year, it's still in one little area. But think about centuries down the road. The veer continues, and it's further and further away from the Scriptures, which is why it's important for us to come back again and again, getting our bearings based on the truth of God's Word and the testimony of the church is immensely helpful in that. The ultimate origin of the Scriptures, that is, it's from God Himself, from heaven. The power of biblical doctrines to change lives. The fact that as a believer we open up the Bible and read on the pages of the New Testament and see, that's what happened to me. I was in darkness and I was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of His love. And it gives us confidence in the Scriptures because we see that the power of changed lives is real in our own and as we see others around us. The loveliness of the style of writing. It's interesting that they would consider something that we might write off as trite, but consider it, the Word of God and and how careful God was to use human authors and to use their different personalities and writing styles and to use all different genres of Scripture, all to say the same primary thing. All of Scripture is pointing out one primary theme and attempting to accomplish one goal. So the testimony of the church, the ultimate origin of the scriptures, the power of biblical doctrines to change lives, the loveliness of the style of writing, the essential unity of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The scriptures are not in contradiction with one another. Now, there are people out there that will try to say, it says this here, it says that there. We'll talk about that, the clarity of scripture in the next paragraph. But there is... Notice the word, essential unity in the Scriptures. From the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, God created and He determined to save a people. And in the end, He has saved His people. In our end, He will have saved His people. The expressed purpose of the Scriptures, the glory of God, the scope of the whole of the Bible is that God receives all glory both now and forever. Seven, the revelation of the way of salvation. That's a reason that we can trust the Bible, a reason that we want to trust the Bible. If we can't trust the Bible, we are without hope. 
I find it fascinating that people want to pick and choose parts of the Bible to believe or parts to write off and say it, it, it doesn't apply to us or to our culture or that was for a different time. I mean, how do you get to pick and choose those parts? Why would we not want to believe something that requires some expectation of us to live holy? Let's say First Peter 1, be holy for I am holy. Ah, that's quoting the Old Testament. That's not quite as relevant. Why do you get to throw that out and not John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nobody wants to throw that one out. I mean, nobody in their right mind. All of it, the revelation from Genesis to Revelation the, is re, the, the revealed word of God reveals to us the way of salvation. And it's a reason we can trust the Bible. And the fact that the scriptures are without error. Yet none compares to the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us. When we read the Word of God and we know it's from Him. Chapter 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary, that is, logically required or essential for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily, implicitly or by definition, contained in the Holy Scripture. Nothing is to be added to the Scripture at any time, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for the saving understanding of those things which are revealed in the Word. We also acknowledge that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church which are common to, shared by, human actions and societies. These are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom in accordance with the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So, paragraph six is emphasizing a couple of different things. First, the sufficiency of God's word. I said earlier when we get to chapter six, we're going to look at clarity, but that's chapter seven. So, chapter six is sufficiency. The sufficiency of God's word. The whole counsel of God, the first sentence of the paragraph says, concerning all things necessary for God's glory, for our salvation, for faith, and life is either expressly written in the scriptures or it is implicitly contained in the scriptures. Either it says it plainly or it is principally stated. The scriptures are absolutely sufficient. But they're not sufficient. The scriptures are not sufficient for everything. And, and that sounds a little off to us for me to say it that way. But there are some things that are not asserted by sufficiency here. All we need to know about the matters mentioned in the confession are not literally stated in the scriptures. The scriptures are not omnisufficient, we might say. The Bible is not all sufficient for every conceivable purpose. The scriptures are not sufficient as a textbook for algebra or chemistry, or Latin. I mean, you can try that. You know? 
for your next chemistry final, show up and say, I read the Gospel of Mark 12 times for this test. It might help you in life. It's not going to help you in chemistry. Now, some clarification. The scriptures are sufficient to achieve the purposes of redemptive revelation. The scriptures are wonderfully and completely sufficient for that which their goal is set out to accomplish. And it it says it here in the first sentence. The scriptures are sufficient for this, for God's glory, for man's salvation, and for faith and life. What is necessary for the Lord's glory? We only find that in the scriptures, and we find all that we need to know about it. What is necessary or essential for our salvation? We only have the answers in the scriptures. We should look nowhere else to know how to glorify God or what is required for us to be saved. The way of faith, how we ought to live life. The scriptures are our sufficiency. We go to the scriptures for that. The way of life here on earth and the way of life eternal. The scriptures are our only source. The Bible, again, a point of clarification, the Bible is not sufficient. The Bible is not sufficient for all that we do, but it does sufficiently speak to the glory of God, the salvation of man, and the way of life. Scripture is sufficient to achieve the purposes of redemptive revelation without supplementation by new revelation or human tradition. Now, in order to beat the dead horse, so to speak, and just be abundantly clear, like the Scripture is not sufficient to tell me the best way to rip this paper in half. Right? So if we say the Scriptures are sufficient for everything, it's an overstatement. In order to be clear and biblical, we would say the Scriptures are sufficient to teach me how to rip this in half to the glory of God. Right? The Scriptures are sufficient to teach me how to be saved. The Scriptures are sufficient to teach me how to live by faith in this life and how to guarantee eternal life. Chapter 7. All things in Scripture are not equally plain in themselves, nor equally clear to all people. Nevertheless, those things which must be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in some place of Scripture or other that not only the educated but the uneducated may reach a sufficient understanding of them by an appropriate use of ordinary means. So, clarity. The scriptures are clear. Sometimes you see this referred to as perspicuity, which is not sweating. It's clarity. The scriptures are plain and obvious. That's the emphasis of this paragraph. This paragraph is a really helpful one. And in studying it over the past couple of weeks and looking at this chapter, I think I've been most helped by this chapter. I mean, this, I've only studied one chapter, so, right, it's this chapter. Um, This paragraph is what I meant to say. I've been helped by this 
paragraph. Because the idea of perspicuity, it's easy for us to think, I read stuff all the time. I don't know about you, I read stuff all the time in the Bible, and it's just not that clear. What exactly does this mean? What exactly is the application for me? What's the application for all of us? All things are not equally plain, and so it's helpful. The one thing that is clearly taught in Scripture are those things that are necessary for, that we ought to know and believe and observe for salvation. That, that's the emphasis of the point of this paragraph. The Bible is clear. The Bible is plain. The Bible is obvious. There's clarity. The Bible is not equally clear in all its parts. Even Peter said some things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. Imagine that. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. So it's okay for us to open our Bibles and say, I just don't know. God, help me. Friend, help me. Commentary, help me. The Bible is not equally clear in all its, in all its parts, and the Bible is not equally clear to all people. But here's the point that I think is helpful and necessary for us to understand. The lack of clarity that we may come across with regard to the Bible, any part of the Bible, is not due to the Bible itself. Right? The Bible is what's clear. What's not clear is our seeing of it. Right? I just took my glasses off. I'll take them off again. You know what's not clear right now? Everything right here. Right? It's not terrible. They're just plus ones. But it's enough that nothing's sitting still. Right? So it's hard to keep moving and, and figure it all out. out. Crystal clear out there. Right? So nothing changes here or, or here between not having the glasses on and having them on. The clarity is exactly the same here. The problem is with me. So when, when I open the Bible and think, Man, that's just not clear. The problem is not with the Bible. The Bible is wonderfully clear. It is plain and obvious, but I am affected by sin. And therefore, I don't see it as clear and plain as obvious as it really is. So we, the Bible is not equally clear in all its parts. There are parts that are more difficult to, to understand and see with clarity than others. And it's not as equally clear to all people. I'm sure that you've been around those people before that can open up to an obscure passage and just make it come alive. And, and that's wonderful. And it, and it makes you want to know, like, man, I want to do that. I want to spend enough time with, with my Bible with God that I understand and know it to, to that degree. So the scriptures are clear. The per perspicuity of scripture is a reality. They are plain and obvious. But we don't always see them that way, right? Because we are damaged by sin. We live in a fallen world. It doesn't make the Bible less clear. Our lack of clarity is due to our sin. 
paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the ancient people of God, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of its writing was most generally known to the nations, being directly inspired by God and kept pure through the ages by his particular care and providence, are therefore authentic. For this reason, the church is to make its final appeal to them in all controversies of religion. However, because these original languages are not known to all the people of God, who all have a right to an interest in the scriptures and who are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, they are therefore to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come in order that the word of God may dwell richly in each one so that they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So you can, this is again a really helpful paragraph that the Old Testament primarily in in Hebrew, there's some Aramaic in there. We saw that in Daniel a few months ago. And the New Testament in Greek, there's some Aramaic there as well. Um, It's those original manuscripts that were directly inspired by God. As those human writers are recording the scriptures, it is directly inspired by God. And then God has kept that pure by his particular care, this is the phrase here, and his providence... And are therefore authentic. So we can have, after thousands of years and translations, we can have the authentic Word of God. For this reason, the church is to make its final appeal to them in all controversies of religion. So we can still trust it, no matter what comes up, no matter what we're faced with, we can still trust the scriptures. They are directly from God. Not this physical copy. That's not the argument that we're making. But the original manuscripts that have been in God's providence preserved for us through his particular care. And because the original languages are not known to all the people of God, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, But all people have a right to an interest in the scriptures. And you can hear in this paragraph here, they are very much writing this confession of faith in the midst of Catholicism being huge. And and Catholicism would not give the scriptures to the people. They would do the, the masses, and this still happens in some places, in Latin where people didn't understand. And so they're pointing out here that, that every individual, we, especially we as Baptists, believe in the priesthood of the believer. And every individual has a right and an interest in the scriptures. And not just that, but an expectation. We are commanded by God in his word to read and search them. Therefore, the Bible should be translated into the common language of every nation into which they come. And we, by God's grace, have copies of scripture, many of them. I probably have too many, but I like them. And we ought to be committed to seeing that that the scriptures are continuing to be translated into the common language of every nation in order that the word of God may dwell richly in each one, nations and individuals.
so that they too may worship God in an acceptable manner. It is impossible to worship him acceptably without his word. Again, go back to paragraph one. Everyone is without excuse. We we can know that there is a God, but we can't know him personally without special revelation. So it should be on our agenda to get the scriptures to people because creation revelation can reveal that there is a God and it's sufficient, it is sufficient to damn, but special revelation is needed. The gospel in word form is needed to bring about salvation of God's people. The authority of the scriptures is dependent on the immediate inspiration that is God inspiring the original inscriptionists of the original writings. And it is continued with the faithful translation of the original writings. Now, there are all kinds of of translations. I'm speaking of English translations specifically. Obviously, the Bible has been translated into lots of different languages. But if we just think about the English language for a moment... I mean, even in here, we probably have three or four translations just among us this evening. And there are many good ones. I mean, it is a remarkable blessing for us to live in an English-speaking world, using world very locally, regionally here, so that we have so many options for the Word of God. But all translations are not equal. Now, my guess is whatever translation you brought in here tonight is wonderful and sufficient, but there are some that we just probably shouldn't spend a lot of time with unless we're doing research. (laughs) Uh, we, We probably shouldn't depend on them in the same way because a faithful translation of the original writings is necessary in order for the authority and the truth, the divineness of the Scriptures to be maintained. And I think that makes sense. If God says this, and we translate it to that, and this doesn't equal that, there's authority lost. So we want that to be this. God says this, we translate it to this, what God said, in a language that we speak and that we understand. And God has gifted many people in this area of languages and giving them the ability to learn the ancient languages and to translate in order that we might benefit from having Bibles in our own languages. Paragraph 9. The infallible rule for the interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. They had no fear of circular reasoning. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture with which is not multiple, manifold, diverse, or varied, but single, one, united, and harmonious, it must be sought by comparison with other passages that speak more clearly. Now, this makes sense. If the Scriptures are the primary foundational truth, you can't go anywhere else in order to decide what it means or what it says. But you can go elsewhere within the Bible Because there are some things in some places in the Bible, as we talked about, that just aren't quite as clear. But there are other places that we can go that are abundantly clear. This is one of the reasons that we don't base major doctrines on obscure passages. Right? 1 Corinthians, baptism for the dead. Are we going to practice that this week? No. Not this week, not next week, not the week after that. You can do that at the Mormon temple. They have built an entire doctrine on an obscure 
passage. We're not going to do that because we practice baptism based on those places in the Scriptures where it's abundantly clear who you baptize. Believers. Paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be settled and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human doctrines, and private spirits, interpretations or opinions, are to be examined and on whose judgment we are to rely can be nothing else but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. By means of this Scripture delivered in this way, our faith is finally settled. So, again, a great paragraph for this chapter to end on. The, the, the finality, the supreme finality, ends with the Scriptures. All controversies are settled here. Decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers. It's not that those things don't matter, but they must match what we see in the Scriptures. You, you can take your favorite human author, and they're going to err, Right? I mean, I err in my own thinking. There's no telling how many times I err in what I say, intentionally or unintentionally. But we go back to the Scriptures again and again. It is the supreme finality. We benefit from the decrees of councils of old, from the opinions of ancient writers, from human doctrines and private spirits. But they have to be examined and compared and judged based on the Bible. The Bible is the final supreme authority. So, circling back to the beginning, briefly, the Holy Scripture, chapter 1, paragraph 1, is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. If we can go back to that summary, all the other truths are, are helpful and wonderful. But the sufficiency of Scripture for all things pertaining to life and godliness that has been provided to us in Christ. And let's seek to believe the Word of God, put our hope in the Word of God, and arrange our lives according to the Word of God. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing again. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your Word really is beyond our understanding, our ability to comprehend how you have put the scriptures together and preserved it for so long in order that we might hold in our very hands the word of God, in order that we might learn with our minds, our hearts, your word. God, we pray that we would be ever in awe of the reality of your divine scripture and that we would long for it like infants long for milk, that we would long for the pure milk of the word and that we would crave it and that we would grow according to it, that we would be fed by it and we would be matured into the image of Christ. God, will you make us like your son and will you use your divinely inspired word to accomplish that. God, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. You've given us exactly what we need to know about you. God, reveal yourself to us. In the places that aren't clear, God, illumine our hearts and our minds and give us clarity. 
Help our wills to be increasingly bent towards obeying you and doing all your commands. And God, we pray that you will do this until that glorious day when we see your wonderful Son. God, until then, make us like him bit by bit from one degree of glory to another as we gaze at him on the pages of your word where he is revealed. God, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it would divide our souls, filleting open our hearts in order that we might be more in love with Christ our King. We pray in his name. Amen.